Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series celebrating our freedom in Christ with a message entitled The Meaning of the Lord's Table. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 18 to 22 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. all of us know the difference between form and substance, or the difference between a symbol and that which it represents. I suppose an easy example of that would be the difference between a wedding ring and the actual marriage. I mean, seen rightly, the wedding ring is a symbol of the vows that are made, vows that cannot be broken except by death. And so the ring is a symbol of love and faithfulness. But when you see a man with a wedding ring flirting with another woman, that ring becomes a symbol, not of a sacred vow, but rather a symbol of hypocrisy. And so the outer form, once thought of as a symbol of faithfulness, actually becomes on a different hand, a symbol of pretense, of duplicity. 1 Corinthians 11.20 contains a startling statement. Paul tells the Corinthian church, when you come together, It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, that sounds very much like telling an immoral man, when you put that ring on your finger, it's not a wedding ring that you put on. I mean, something of his behavior belies the ring, and something of the behavior of the Corinthian church belied the meaning of the Lord's Supper. The symbol in the hands of the faithless changed its meaning. And that sense of things is crucial for all Christians and all churches today. If we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, We'd better celebrate the Lord's table and not the table of discord or the table of jealousy or selfish ambition or unfaithfulness to the Lord who bought us with his blood. The invitation to join our Lord at his table also comes with an obligation that we who are seated with him who loves us will not in the next breath be unfaithful. See, these are very serious matters. Celebration at the table of our Lord is one of the great blessings every Christian enjoys. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican theologian, said of the Lord's table, no doubt a man may be saved without receiving the Lord's Supper. It's not a matter of absolute indispensable necessity, like repentance and faith and conversion. But it's impossible to say that a professing Christian is in a safe, healthy, or satisfactory condition of soul who habitually refuses to obey Christ and attend the Lord's table. See, when Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me, he was in fact not inviting us to his table, but demanding our presence. To refuse to be there is an offense, but to be there in a state of unfaithfulness, well, that's an offense as well. Or consider the following quote from Pastor Erwin Lutzer, for many years, the pastor of the very famous Moody Bible Church in Chicago. Lutzer was commenting on Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon was a key friend of Martin Luther in giving birth to the German Reformation. Melanchthon wrote extensively on the importance of the Lord's Supper, and his views were highly controversial, and most evangelicals, I think, reject his very strict interpretation of the meaning of the events. But that notwithstanding, writes Lutzer, if Melanchthon were alive today, he might not weep because of the controversies that surround the meaning of the Lord's Supper, but he might well sorrow because of the indifference to its meaning and importance. I say all these things because what we find in 1 Corinthians 11 is how central a place the Lord's Supper played in the life and the fellowship of the early church. 
You know, if you listen to my last teaching on this, you'll remember that I said the life of the early church consisted of four things. Teaching the apostles doctrine, a rich fellowship that included words of encouragement for one another, times of corporate prayer, the celebration of the Lord's table. And just as other books of the New Testament rebuke the church for allowing, for instance, false teachers to teach, this book, 1 Corinthians, rebukes the Corinthians for allowing false attitudes from developing around the table of our Lord. So let's begin to read Paul's rebuke to the church. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 18. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now, this description of a deeply divided church coming to the Lord's table is not a surprise to those who have studied Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. The discussion of their divisions began in the very first chapter of this book. You know, back in chapter one, Paul mentions that it was Chloe's people who told him what was going on. Now, we don't know who Chloe was, but apparently everyone in the Corinthian church must have known, and it must have also been clear that Chloe had a reputation of truthfulness and honesty. And so Paul confronts the church on what he has heard. And by the way, I know this is a bit of a side issue, but I feel I have to mention it. Have you noticed that when Paul confronts the Corinthians about what he has heard, he doesn't say, you know, some people are saying, to confront someone on the basis of what some people are saying, well, that's usually a power play, and it's overwhelmingly cruel. You know, it puts all the power into the hands of the person with the complaint, and it will not allow the person under fire to be able to answer the complaints. You know, Paul is a man of integrity, and he tells the Corinthians exactly what he's heard and who has said it. And when he's done, everything is now brought into the daylight. So in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, Paul, on the basis of what he has heard from Chloe, says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So now in chapter 11, when speaking of the Lord's Supper, he comes back to the matter of divisions. The challenge of divisions, or literally in verse 18, schismata or schisms can destroy any church. In chapter 1, it was theological divisions, but here, Paul is hearing about what is happening in the love feasts. And as we saw in the last study on this matter, the heart of the issue at the Lord's table, no doubt, came out of a cultural reality that this church lived in. You know, this church was made up of different nationalities. There were Jews and Romans and Greeks and from other nations as well. But what was at stake were the different social and economic backgrounds that they came from. Some were merchants, some were government officials, some were Old Testament scholars, some were professionals, and some from the educated classes, but others were laborers and dock workers and the poor who lived, as many of them did, in rented quarters. And in my years in the church, I have noticed that friendship networks naturally form along social and economic lines of demarcation. And the divisions, these schisms Paul mentions, are exactly these divisions these uncrossable barriers of economics, barriers which the Lord's table was intended to break down. You see, at the Lord's table, we are meant to see that all who come are in need of grace and equally spiritually poverty-stricken, needing to be fed by the Lord. That's the challenge of the Lord's table. 
It says we have fellowship with God and with each other. We have communion. And so this division was the first challenge that was presented at the Lord's table. So let's continue to read now in verse 19. For there are factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, as difficult as this verse sounds, you know, with a little thought, the meaning should become plain to us. The word genuine has also been translated as those who are approved. It refers to those who have passed the test. So it turns out that there are some in the Corinthian church, when they celebrated the Lord's table, they they actually passed the test. See, unlike so many of the rich who separated themselves out from the poor, there were people in Corinth who definitely did not. They saw the celebration of communion as communion among God's people. You know, in the middle of social divisions in which the wealthy ate the love feast in large dining rooms of the house where they met, and the poor gathered in the atrium, some in Corinth, I assume, would have been accepted in the dining room, but they preferred the atrium and acted as if in Christ all of the social barriers have been evaporated. And when they did this, every celebration of the Lord's table proved their genuineness, for they got it. See, I hope you see that's also our challenge today. If today you're well-to-do, might I give you an exercise? List your closest friends, and if there are none in the list, made up of people who are blue-collar laborers. Might I suggest to you, might I gently suggest to you, you need to repent. Next time when you attend communion, think of Jesus, who was rich in eternal glory, yet for our sakes became poor and emptied himself by becoming obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. He, that is Jesus, is your example. Be like him, follow his example, and work it out in the daily details of your life, and you will find yourself passing the test, and the Lord's table will become all the more precious and refreshing to you. And so make the table of the Lord your sign of authenticity, like a wedding ring on your finger. Let it show who you truly are. Hi, this is Ben Lowell. You know what? We're missing you. And the opportunities we've had in the past to get out and meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter, and the study of God's Word. So enough is enough. We want to invite you to be part of Back to the Bible Canada's The Gathering, taking place Sunday, September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us on the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page and enjoy a time together with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced in the days ahead. So mark it on your calendar for this national ministry event, The Gathering. Learn more by visiting the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page, visit backtothebible.ca events, or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Remember, join us for The Gathering. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? 
Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. See, ultimately, when Paul is speaking about the divisions at the table of the Lord, he's speaking about the problem of the rich and the poor at the table of the Lord. And just before we jump on the bandwagon and condemn the rich in Corinth, please understand that the rich were behaving in a way that was acceptable in the ancient world. Since the love feasts were held in the largest homes available, and since those homes were owned by the rich, and since what was considered normal was to divide people on economic grounds, the rich were simply doing what their culture would have considered normal. And what we find in the gospel is a reordering of cultural practices. Let's consider three earth-shattering examples, and the first comes to us from James chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. It reads, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, Sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, now that we understand that Christian gatherings were often held in homes and the largest homes belonged to the rich, we can now see how it was a cultural practice for a rich man to be in a large dining hall and the poor man to be in the atrium. And the Bible mandates that this practice be brought to an end. I mean, that was a revolutionary idea. It shook the ancient culture, turned it upside down. See, the second example comes from the book of Philemon. And those of you who know your Bible well will know that Philemon, the rich man at Colossae, who had a church that met in his house, was also a slave owner. His slave, a young man named Onesimus, had run away, and Paul had seen him come to Christ. In the book of Philemon, Paul tells Philemon to take him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a brother. In fact, the tradition from the early church teaches that Onesimus the slave became a bishop in the early church, a prominent leader. Slaves in early Christianity could become pastors, leaders of the church who taught the gospel in the large dining halls of expensive homes, and the rich would have become submissive to their pastors. Now the third example, and this one from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 18. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now that was the genius of Christian fellowship. If you're going to have communion, if you will celebrate the Lord's table in your homes, it has to be on a level playing field. Rich and poor, educated and uneducated, slave and free, men and women come together as equals at the table of the Lord. The lines are erased here and no one goes back to the back of the room. You know, probably no symbol of how different the Christian church was from the wider culture was this very thing. Now back one more time to verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. I mean, what a damning statement. Paul is saying there is a fundamental element of the Lord's table that makes it uniquely the Lord's table. And if you don't have that, you might have bread and you might have wine, but you don't have love. And love and unity trumps everything. 
Now, just before I go on, most of the time when theologians speak about the Lord's table, you know, they'll argue about whether it's a sacrament or an ordinance and whether it's transubstantiation or consubstantiation or, or just a memorial meal. And I'm not undermining the importance of that conversation and that debate, but the issue of love and unity at the table of the Lord is the issue. Now, how I approach the table is the issue. And so as I reflected on those thoughts, I thought of two things. I thought about the challenge that our brothers and sisters in Corinth faced, and then I thought about our own challenges today. See, most of us today don't have a love feast in a wealthy person's home. Communion in almost all churches happen now in public buildings dedicated to the use of that church. And I know of no churches where the wealthy sit in the prize section of the building. Everyone just goes where they feel like going. So does this passage speak to us today? Well, yes, it does. Indeed, I think this text presents all Christians today with three particular challenges. The first is the challenge of our unity as believers. Listen to these words from 1 John 4, verse 20, and and let them sink into your heart. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, I know of nothing more challenging than those words. I know that we are called to love the people of God, broken people, hurting people, obnoxious people, oversensitive people, I'm called to love people who like cats, people who put sugar in their coffee, people who cheer for the Edmonton Oilers, for heaven's sakes, people who wear shorts on hot days with black socks and black shoes, and people most unlike us. And God says to me, these are the people you see, my people. And if you don't love them, I'm telling you, you don't love me. And that's the challenge of communion, of koinonia, the fellowship of God's people around the table of the Lord. Now the second challenge, it's the challenge of charity. See, I can't avoid the issue of the poor at the table of the Lord, not not if I read this passage properly. See, this passage is a clarion call that the rich should not fellowship without the poor joining in as equals among them. There can be no distinctions of social class at this table. And somehow, we've got to work that stuff out. You know, for most of my life, as I remember communion, I attended and led churches that practiced a special offering at communion called the, the Benevolent Offering. It was a special offering that was received for the poor among us, and it allowed the church to respond to economic need. It was done at communion because it was believed that this very passage mandated just such a practice. So listen to James 2, 15 to 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, this is a command, not for the world, but for our brothers and sisters, the ones we see in our own church family. The table of the Lord, the communion of saints, demands this level of care. It calls for those of us who have to be generous and to be ready to share so that those of us who don't have will find that their basic needs are met. And now to the third challenge that this passage presents us with. It is the challenge of our ongoing fidelity or faithfulness to Christ our Lord. See, I'm reminded of Paul's own words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 21 to 22. There he said that we cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 
The table of communion is therefore a table of fidelity. It's a table that says, once I have come here, I cannot worship another god. I cannot appear in an idol's temple. I cannot serve anyone but Christ Jesus, my Lord. I can't serve my culture as a god, not my values, not the religions of this world. It is Christ who died for me. It is him and him only that I will serve. He alone has my ultimate loyalty. The table demands my loyalty to Christ alone. That's where the lines must be drawn. For to refuse unity and charity and fidelity is to eat and drink judgment upon myself. The story is told of a young boy whose mom and dad gave him a dollar so that he'd have something to put into the offering basket as it went by. And later on, communion was being served. And and dad looked at his young son and said, "Uh, not yet, son. You're not yet ready for your first communion. You know, the boy looked angrily at his dad, and he remembered the, the one dollar that he had in his hand and how much it hurt to throw that one dollar in the offering basket. And he said, what do you mean I can't have it? I paid for it. It's mine. And isn't that the point of communion? We have never paid for it, Christ did. And because of that, communion will always challenge us to unity, to charity, and to fidelity. Christ calls the rules to his table. And his table changes our communion with him and also our communion with one another. Heavenly Father, if this day I have held something against a brother or sister, cause me this day, O Lord God, because of your table, to love that brother or sister as you would have me do so. In Jesus' name we pray. John, I'm going to ask you a question. Part of it's an assumption. The assumption is this, we're doing the form correctly within our church. But if we're doing the form correctly, but the function isn't correct or the purpose isn't correct, we've really got nothing. Yeah, and I do think that's what, you know, 1 Corinthians, this chapter is really all about. I mean, it seeks to challenge us that this idea of the communion of the saints, I mean, celebrating together, wherever we are, this level ground before the cross that, that, that worships and says, you know, I'm unworthy, but Christ has done everything for me. And then at the same time, to make distinctions between ourselves. I mean, what does that actually say? So yes, Ben, that's exactly, I think, what this text is all about. When we leave the form in place, but rob the content and simply are doing the form, I mean, what does it say about us except that we are found guilty of hypocrisy before the Lord. So I think that doing communion together really challenges us towards authenticity, authentic Christianity should be ours. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. These are challenging days. Many across Canada find themselves in circumstances that they would have never imagined. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something to place our confidence in. And for many, that means a rediscovery of faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. This is the reason Back to the Bible Canada is steadfastly committed to offering Bible teaching you can trust every day with every medium possible, including this radio program. In short, We're committed to remaining faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching for God, we want to be there. 
Your support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, including Laugh Again and a young adult ministry in doubt, is essential. To discover more about these ministries or to find out about our national ministry event, The Gathering, this coming September 27th, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.